0: okay Lee Slater welcome to the show thank you thank you yep now Lee you've got an incredible story for us today you've been keeping a colony well uh, an apiary of the English black bee, uh, for 63 years. Uh, it's an incredible story. I heard about it for the first time about three or four weeks ago from a mate of mine, Matthew Crane. He said, have you have you heard about this, uh, the black bee in Tasmania? And I said, no, I haven't. And I asked about it on the Tasmanian beekeeping forums and no one else had either. So it's a very well-kept secret and an incredible story. So do you want to tell us uh, that story today, Lee?
1: Yes, yes. Um, I started beekeeping when I was 12 years old. Uh, I got my first um, swarm of bees when I was 12 and uh, little did I know there was uh, a rare strain of bee because uh, this type of bee was fairly common in the high altitudes area like Taralea and, and places like that. That was just ordinary bees to me and of course uh, as I kept bees I built them up and uh, I suppose I had about 20 hives of these bees as a boy. And uh, the the law those days was that you should have them registered. So I approached the local policeman there and uh, and asked him uh, about the registration. He said yes, it's compulsory. So I got them registered. And uh, of course, in turn, um, uh, the uh, the present apiary officer at that time in Tasmania was Don Cunningham, and uh, he got in touch with me to uh, come up and do a uh, a visit at uh, at these bees, and of course he came up and I met him, met him there, and uh, we looked at the bees, and he was he was fairly impressed with them. Um, and so, I, I kept them as good as I could in uh, Payton Hives and of course um, after uh, after uh, he sort of uh, finished looking at the bees, he said to me, he said, I can't get over how quiet they are. He said normally normally the black strain of bee. Uh, is fairly aggressive. He said, but uh, these seem to be so quiet. And of course uh, Taralea was an isolated area uh, in the mountains of Tasmania. And of course, uh, the strain uh, has kept pure. Well, it was pure those days. And of course, uh, no other foreign strains had had mingled with the black strain. Anyway, uh, he was uh, so impressed with them, he... uh, he came up a few times and looked at him again as well, and uh, he said, oh, "So, oh, I'd like to write to uh, people uh, through a couple of scientists." Anyway, he got in touch with uh, a chapby by the name of Professor Yule, and uh, who was, I think, he was German, and uh, Professor Ratner, um, and I think he was American, and uh, they exchanged notes, and they were fairly impressed by. Uh, the locality of them and the quietness of the strain, and so in turn, uh, Don Cunningham uh, came and got samples of these bees, and uh, and sent them back to these uh, scientists. And uh, <coughs> pardon me, and they do uh, wing measurements to to check on the purity of them. And of course, uh, they came up trumps. And, of course, uh, in turn, these, these, these chappies came out and had a look at the bees as well. And, of course, the Sydney University got involved. And, of course, uh, um, and uh, of course, um, they thought, well, maybe they should do something to try and protect the strain in the area. So they, they declared a reserve in the central part mm-hmm. of Tasmania for these black bees.
0: Now, Lee, can you tell us what year this is?
1: Well, uh, I think it must have been around about... Um, back in the late 60s, early 70s, at a guess. And, uh, and of course, uh, things rolled on from there. So uh, the government see fit to um, draw up a, a boundary for these black bees. And where I actually have them wasn't sort of a, a good honey-producing area, like for commercial beekeepers. So uh, there wasn't much... Uh, there wasn't much uh, sort of uh, friction caused by uh, uh, the government actually uh, declaring it a reserve with Donningham, Don Cunningham's help, and uh, of course it rolled on from there. So, uh, mm-hmm. so this yeah.
0: r- this reserve, what what kind of size are we talking here?
1: Well, uh, I can't honestly tell you. I've been looking for the maps, but I can't tell you. But it's quite a quite a big area. Uh, I could explain yeah. it by uh, explaining land uh, landmarks and things like that for you but if you want me to do that.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. I've actually got a copy of the map, and I'll send it to you after this. A friend oh, of mine well, yeah, sent sure. it to Thank me.
1: You. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, so uh, uh, it sort of runs, uh, it follows the, the, the high crest of the mountains on the western side of the Doand up to Lake King William, and then it uh, deviates across uh, just from memory, Across to uh, the lower Highway, and then it sort of comes back down through uh, the Dee Lagoon area, part of the Dee Lagoon area, around via Bradys Lake, and of course down through to uh, like not far from Wayatina, where I live now, and uh, it's the centre part, pretty well of of the Tasmania. So uh, mm-hmm. that was that was declared the reserve for the old English black bee.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a very large area. For listeners who are not familiar with the area, a very very it big is. area. It is. It was mainly
1: timbered, and of course, uh, since the uh, late sixties and seventies, uh, uh, the government see fit to woodchip, uh, you know, to create woodchipping. And of course, uh, it's uh, it's happened here on the reserve. And of course, uh, they've taken a lot of woodchip timber away from the reserve now. And, of course, when they take it, when they take it away, they plant pine trees, whereas uh, before it was forested with uh, large swamp gums and man ferns, so uh, it was uh, pristine forest. But uh, uh, of course, now with the wood chipping it's uh, it's sort of opened it up a bit, a bit but uh, there's still pure strains of bees in the area, and I've still got uh, pure strains of bees. Um, but, uh, really yeah.
0: fantastic. And, and is it – so tell us the part about how people came over from England and uh, took samples of it back to England to repopulate the area over there.
1: Yeah, well, that's another story. Now, um, Don got inquiries from a beekeeper in England to uh, try and uh, establish the black strain back there because they'd lost the uh, the strain there. And, of course, in turn, uh, we bred queen bees and actually uh, – sent them uh, back to England to this beekeeper. And I think he had fairly good success with them. Uh, I don't know whether they're still going now. I, I shouldn't think so, probably. But, uh, yes, we did send queen bees back to, to England. I reckon I'm the first Tasmania to ever export bees, queen bees to England anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. that was all done through the Agricultural Department and care of Don Cunningham, which was the uh, local apiary inspector.
0: Mm -hmm. And for listeners just here, uh, just a bit of background. Uh, In the early 1900s, there was a disease uh, called the Isle of Wight disease that went through England and wiped out most of the native Apis mellifera mellifera. And uh, most people in England who were keeping bees at the time actually replaced their, their colonies with Italian bees. So... Um, there was a time in which there was not many uh, native uh, black peas in England, so Lee's efforts here were really good in helping them re-establish that population.
1: Yes, I uh, I didn't know about the disease, but yes, that that sort of fits in, doesn't it? So mm. uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, a little bit of history was made there, um, and of course. Um, you know, I've I've still, well, I've still kept... I had ended up with about 80 hives of the black bees. And, uh, of course, uh, they're very labour-intensive. Uh, all they want to do is, uh, in the summertime or springtime, is build up. They build up nice and strong. You think you're going to get a crop of honey off them, and then they'll cast a swarm. And uh, I've known some of those hives to actually cast swarms up to four and five times and even while I've been uh, removing queen cells uh, and moving along the rows of the bees doing inspections and removing cells, I've looked behind me to the hives I've just done and and out they come with a swarm so it was hopeless trying to to keep them in uh, in strong stead for a honey flow they just naturally wanted to swarm, even though Mm -hmm. uh, winter time they wintered well Um, they would form a cluster in the in the centre of the hive, and uh, and very, they wouldn't eat much of their stores either. I think that's just the, the breed of the, the old English black bee. They pretty well live on nothing, and they survive, and they can survive pretty severe winters. Of course, we used to get snow at Terralea and uh, I've, you know, on different occasions I've seen seven and eight inches of snow on top of the lids. <laughs> so they are fairly hardy.
0: Mm. Yeah, the swarming thing is very interesting. I've got a, a mate in in Ireland, Terry Meakin. I've, I've just did a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago, and oh, yeah. he said that's he he works with the Irish black bee. So, and oh, yeah. he said one of the biggest issues that he has is with them is, is again swarming. So, mm-hmm. and I said I sent him a picture of my Caucasians that I use, and they won't swarm almost ever. You know, even if they're honeybound, bound it's it's very very different yeah but that's that's an that's an incredible story and so you're you're currently still keeping them and what but apart from swarming what do you think some other differences what what are some other differences that you'd find between them and, and say the Italian bees which i know you also have a, some hives of Italian bees uh,
1: oh well I meant to say they're lousy housekeepers um you know that they're, they're prone to picking up any sort of uh, Disease, uh, and you've got to you've got to inspect the brood fairly regular and things like that. And I noticed even chalk brood, which we've got here in Tasmania, uh, they'll seal it over rather than drag it out. So uh, they're not real good housekeepers, the the black bees. But uh, other than that, they seem to survive. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And do you know? So this this program was set up in the in the early 70s by the Tasmanian government to protect the bees. Do you know where that program's at at the moment?
1: Look, I haven't heard anything from the government since more or less, I suppose, Harold Aiton. Um, Don Cunningham was a senior apiary officer. And, of course, Harold Aiton was uh, the uh, inspector after Harold retired. And after Harold died, well... I virtually haven't heard from from anybody uh, with any assistance or any help to uh, keep the strain going. Uh, hmm. even so, though, go on.
0: So, how long how long do you think it's been since you've heard from the government regarding this program?
1: Oh, fifty years.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, wow. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they consider it as uh, as being very important in the beekeeping fraternity but uh it's just n- another one of their uh the things that they've got but uh yes it's uh, pretty sad really i suppose uh even though the tasmanian beekeepers association uh helped me in uh in doing a queen breeding course which I did with a commercial mm-hmm. beekeeper and yep. uh i i did a week a week long course with him on uh, at his at his residence at his at his apiary, and uh, learned how to uh Rare Queen, rare Queens, and, and of course, uh, uh, that's, that's another uh, trade on its own, really, isn't it? Rare and mm-hmm. Queen. Breed. So I, I was yes. grateful for the uh, Tasmania beekeepers to assist me, and uh, that goes back in the, I suppose, early 70s that I was able to do that course. <clears throat> and I've benefited a lot from it as well. So that's helped me uh, with uh, trying to keep the strain pure. But uh, mm-hmm. it's nice. It's nice to be able to graft a, a, a lovely black queen and things like that. But of course, uh, they're a lot of work. They're a lot of work when you when you really look into it. Uh, they're nearly yeah. a job of their own. Without the uh, without the um, the Italian queen bees, oh Italian bees, they're hard mm-hmm. to look after. But anyway, that's the way it goes. Yeah.
0: Well. I guess I want to say thanks. Thanks for the great job that you've done over the last 63 years in maintaining <laughs> this line of bees. Yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, you've done an excellent job. Yeah, we we'll and, and what a what a great story.
1: Yeah, well, as I say, I, I started off at 12 years old and I worked in Dad's butcher shop after school to actually get pocket money to buy bee equipment. And, of course... Uh-huh. Um, when he used to order his uh, greaseproof paper and brown paper to wrap the meat in from Walsh's in Hobart, they were agents for Pender Brothers and they sold beekeeping equipment there and of course Mm. uh, nothing suited me more than to uh, save up me dollars or me me pounds those days and uh, when it came time to uh, purchase these, I'd say to Dad listen, uh, I've I've saved up 10 pounds and he'd say, oh I don't owe you that, but uh, when I showed him the uh, the record in the docker book where I'd put it down after saving 10 shillings a week out of a, a one-pound note, um, he had to sort of bite the bullet that I used to get my uh, beekeeping equipment up when he got his paper from Hobart.
0: Mm, oh, that's great. Good <laughs> story. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, I've got a mate in New Zealand, uh, John Berry, and he was telling me a story that his grandfather... So this is the Arateki honey family. It's a fairly big honey family in, in New Zealand. His grand Yes. Yes. So his his grandfather, who started the business, was working in a meat packing facility in in a butcher's, like a very big commercial butchery, and yes. um, he he made all of his first beehives out of the offcuts from from the crates that they were using to box up all the meat.
1: There you go.
0: So oh. yeah, yeah, oh. that's good. <laughs> yeah, another interesting butcher story. Yes.
1: Exactly.
0: Now while I've got you there, Lee. Yeah. Uh, it would be great if you if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like working with uh, leatherwood honey because you you you're about to go to leatherwood.
1: Yes, well, uh, um, you can get leatherwood uh, on the lower reaches of the Gordon Road, uh, and and when uh, if you've got leatherwood sites lower down in the leatherwood country, you can normally get two to three crops of honey off them, and of course. Uh, Higher altitudes, uh, you only get one take. So most of the leatherwood sites that I've got are high-altitude high leatherwood sites. And, of course, I only get one take off those sites. But uh, I'll uh, probably take off uh, uh, between four and five ideals of uh, leatherwood honey off each hive. And, and that's my take for the, uh, for the summer. Uh, and uh, I normally leave me to fill up uh, the lower boxes while they're there to uh, get them through the winter. Which is uh, I normally leave uh, an extra box of honey on them. So that's four ideals high just for the winter, and any surplus I take off the top. But uh, uh, and I I don't uh, shake the bees off the combs. I I lift two boxes of honey and put a uh, bee escapes underneath them and Mm -hmm. uh, come back the next day and just lift the honey off without any bees in it.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting uh, for people who are overseas, an ideal box is sort of like a half of a full-depth Langstroth. It's a little bit more than half. And what's interesting is in Tasmania, everyone only uses them. They use them for the brood, they use them for the supers, everything. That's a really interesting thing about Tasmania. Do you do that as well, Lee?
1: Yes, yes. All the all the equipment I've got is uh, ideal. Uh, I know a lot of a lot of beekeepers in Tasmania have gone into a full depth for a brood box, but uh, mm-hmm. if you've got, if you've got the one size uh, frame, you can interchange uh, your equipment fairly easily without sort of uh, any any bother. Uh, so the mm-hmm. ideal the ideal box, yes, it is a little bit deeper than a half depth, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, when you work with those, if you're carrying those back and forth or onto the vehicle and then and to the honey room at any stage, an ideal box is, full of honey is, is quite enough to carry, let alone a mm-hmm. full-deck one. I pity the commercial beak if it's on the mainland. They're all full-deck, aren't they, really? But, yes, it's... Mostly, it's, yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, so we use them for honey supers as well as uh, brood boxes as well. Mm. Quite, quite I thought
0: yeah. about... I thought about five years ago changing over solely to ideals and, and I was a bit worried about how difficult it would be to find the queen because most of my business is queen raising and uh, what do you think about that?
1: Yes, I think you, you're right there because uh, you can find a queen easier on a full depth comb than you can an ideal frame comb because uh, they tend to run from one side to the other and of course you can miss them quite easily. When I'm looking for queens in the early spring, the the, uh, the swarms are not all that big. And, of course, you can find them fairly easy. And mostly she's on the brood as well uh-huh. at that time of the year. So, uh, yes, you can miss them quite easily in an ideal, whereas a full depth has that advantage of finding them pretty quickly. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Now, we were just talking earlier, you were just getting ready to uh, charter your chopper pilot to take the, the hives into the leatherwood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you're out of my range i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is true
0: some people do do it don't they
1: oh yes yes uh, where uh, where forestry bridges have rotted out and uh, beekeepers want to get to a an exceptional leatherwood site they uh, they will fly them in on pallets but uh, i wouldn't like the uh, the to pay the expense it costs to uh, to actually do that but uh, it looks a bit scary when the, you see four boxes on a pallet uh, hanging beneath a helicopter.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a few videos, very funny.
1: All right, well, uh,
0: thanks a lot for being with us today, Lee. Really appreciate it. A great story. And, and once again, thanks so much for, for all you've done there and uh, hope that it, it continues into the future. And uh, hope for, hopefully I can get down there and, and check them
1: out one day. Oh, be nice if you could, Brent, yeah. Um, yeah so uh, as I said, uh, if you can save me a... Uh a copy of the interview that'd be lovely
0: yeah no worries well once again thanks for coming on and we'll talk again soon
1: my pleasure Brent thank you